This is the second lesson in the Kentucky Revival, and I didn't know if I'd do another one, but there's so much information here, and uh, in 2018, our Sunday schools are an hour long, so I covered so much material in an hour. Back then, I even taught a little bit about the Cane Ridge Revival in Paris, Kentucky in 1801. But uh, because there were a number of aberrations in this revival that we can learn from, I wanted to do a discussion just about some of these aberrations, not trying to explain them, but why it's really important in our day, since we have more revivalism than revival, I wanted to discuss these things and uh, speak just a little bit about the Asbury Revival that was such a big phenomenon in February of 2023 because I believe a lot of people who should have known better was saying we really want to be charitable here and we will know the results after some time. And very early on, I was getting reports about that revival that raised red flags. But as we get to that, I will tell you a couple of elements that are totally missing in these revival reports that you would find in any historic accounts of revival. Did you read? And I started studying revival mostly through Jonathan Edwards going back to 1984. I remember they had this really good bookstore in Montville, New Jersey at Trinity Baptist Church, and I believe the first paperback I bought there, which they still published, are three combined works on revival by Jonathan Edwards. And I remember the first time I read a narrative of many surprising conversions. I was just so intrigued by his analysis and detail, even though I, he was probably... 32, 33 when he wrote that, but there was a Presbyterian historian in Kentucky. I have, at least PDF format, the history of the Baptist churches in Kentucky. This is the first week I looked at this, but since he mentions a revival in Logan County and since um, James McGrady was a Presbyterian, I thought it, he would be helpful on this subject. So Logan County, I believe, if you go any further south, you are in uh, Tennessee. But Robert Davidson in his History of the Presbyterian Church in Kentucky, quote, on the eve of the 19th century, notwithstanding the increase of ministers and churches, the prospect was sufficiently gloomy to appall both the Christian and the patriot. The population of the state of Kentucky advanced with incredible rapidity and soon outstripped the supply of the means of grace. Worldly-mindedness, infidelity, and dissipation threatened to deluge the land and sweep away all vestiges of piety and morality. Well, since this was already called Rogue's Gallery there, I don't know how much worse it could have gotten, but I think he's talking about the entire state. That When James McGrady came to Logan County in 1797, he knew he had to have known what he was getting into coming to Logan County because it had a infamous history where all the criminal element from the East Coast would escape the law by coming here to Kentucky. But he says the elder church members were gradually dying off and were replaced by no recruits from the ranks of the young. Except a little gauche and here and there the shadow of night was gathering over the land. A disjuncture when hope was ready to expire and unlooked for an astonishing change suddenly took 
place. This event was called the Great Revival of 1800, so called from its wide extent and influence, and which, after all necessary allowances for the disorders which deformed it, was beyond controversy attended with signal benefits. This extraordinary excitement is styled the Revival of 1800. There is a history of the Revival of Kentucky of 1800, and they called it the Great Revival. And really, for numbers, it was extraordinary. Even in the Great Awakening, you didn't have gatherings in one place of 10 to 20,000 people in stagecoaches and so on. On the East Coast, of course, being built up more, they would have been in local churches. But here, because as we looked at the Red River Meeting House last week, the building itself is really very small. I would estimate if you had more than 100 people there, it'd be pretty crowded. Surprisingly, as I got into the pulpit and read, though, I thought the acoustics were pretty decent as long as you read Well, a lot of what I'm going to quote in this particular study is from a book or from an article that was published in the Princeton Theological Review by Thomas Cleland, who at the time he visited the revival wasn't even a pastor. He was studying for the ministry and didn't even know if what he had to say because the desire to publish it never came until 1838 about... 36 years after it was first given to uh, the public. But um, William Spear in his work called The Great Revival of 1800, quote, the Reverend David Rice preached a sermon at the opening of the Senate of Kentucky in 1803 in relation to the general beneficent character of the revival in that section of our country. His interesting and impressive words should be deeply considered by those who desire a return of the Holy Spirit to our churches now and are willing to use the means which a sovereign God has appointed to secure so unspeakably great and precious a favor from him. William Spear's works that you can find online or on a place called the Log College Press. And it was started by another man, but the guy who maintains it, who's put most of the documents, is a very good friend of mine, Andrew Myers, who is really, really a Presbyterian historian of the history of the Presbyterian Church in the United States. And You marvel that him and I get along so well because the fact of the matter is I'm a Reformed Baptist that very early on just took a real interest in Presbyterian history because that was what was available through the Banner of Truth. Banner of Truth wasn't published in a lot of Baptist works except the works of Charles Spurgeon and John Bunyan. This revival has made its appearance appearance in various places without any extraordinary means to produce it. The preaching, the singing, the praying have been the same to which people had been long accustomed and under which they had hardened to a great degree. So they get used to the means of grace and they become indifferent to it. And the first symptoms of the revival have been a praying spirit and a few pious people found among us. They somehow got their minds impressed with a sense of their own 
backsliding with a sense of the prevalence of vice and fidelity and impiety and an unusual compassionate concern for the salvation of precious souls who were perishing in their sins and for the prosperity of Zion. They prayed, they endeavored to excite their friends and neighbors to pray. They formed themselves into praying societies that they might mutually encourage and assist each other. The revival appears to be granted in answer to prayer and in confirmation of the gracious truth that God has not said to the house of Jacob, seek you me in vain. When he says he will be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I think that's so interesting because though revival is sovereign and God will bestow his spirit, his spirit will come in his manifest presence according to a sovereign God, yet continually as I study this subject, I have found that revival comes through means of grace and often like in the revival of 1859 that came to Ireland that was started by the reports of the revival that was taking place in Manhattan with Jeremiah Calvin Lanfear, the Layman's Prayer Revival. And as they were getting reports, people were coming to Ireland and they were reporting it. And then the story that I mentioned so often, page 22 of a work called Authentic Records of Revival Now in Progress in the United Kingdom by William Reed. There is a letter by a man named Adam McGill who was in Boviva, Ireland, and he said as they got these reports about revivals going in and other places, they would meet consistently for prayer starting in 1858 and in 1859 they started to experience it and I have often said of all the accounts I've read of a revival in a single church that one is one of the most amazing that I ever read and I would say that this would happen as well to us if we got report that there was a real genuine revival happening in a Reformed Baptist church in Louisville, and people brought the report back to us, I'm sure we would really be stirred up to pray for it. But one of the reasons I teach this subject is I believe that we always should be praying, even if we don't see the results. Immediately, we will be the better for it. And I think of Richard Owen Roberts. He's 92 now. He's moved on to Texas. But I remember him saying in a sermon I probably heard 10 to 15 years ago that he had prayed every day for revival for the last 25 years. He wanted it so badly. So he goes on to say, as far as I can see, there appears to be in the subjects of this work a deep heart humbling sense of the great unreasonableness, abominable nature, pernicious effects, and deadly consequences of sin, and the absolute unworthiness in a sinful creature of the smallest crumb of mercy from the hand of a holy God. There appears to be in them a deep mourning on account of their own sins, the sins of their fellow professors, and the sins of the careless and profane, and particularly for the base sin of ingratitude to God for his many mercies and conviction of the justice of God in condemning and punishing his offending creatures. But I want to talk about the aberrations in a revival. Aberrations are things that have no real symmetry, they're not well organized, they're things that come into a revival that really actually should be guarded against it. You wouldn't even, if you would have went to the Asbury Revival 
and you watch some of the things that were being done and you would say that's really counterproductive to orderliness and we really believe that conversions come through the preaching of the word and as I listened to the YouTube video of the pastor who's coming to the Marbeck conference from our sister church on the other side of the state that he said that it was interesting that people were very impatient if anybody got up and said that I have a 20 to 30 minute devotional or sermon. They didn't want sermons. They wanted music. They wanted something that they could immediately be a partaker in. They thought that if they're not involved in the worship, then it can't be a real revival to them. So the first subject that I'm going to cover in most detail is the effect of sympathy. I've done a couple of podcasts on this from the Man of God Network because this is such an interesting phenomenon. This is from Robert Louis Dabney's Discussions Volume 3 called Spurious Religious Excitements, and I had narrated that for the podcast, and I'll tell you who really, really uh, enjoyed those podcasts were the brothers Adam and Terry Clark because of the charismatic background that they were in. But we need to define sympathy. The most deceptive natural feeling of the carnal man is instinctive sympathy. It will be necessary to state the nature and conditions of this feeling. First, it belongs to the passive sensibilities, not to the spontaneous appetencies. So let me explain that. You don't have to think about it to breathe. You don't have to think about it for your heart to beat. There are certain things that are below your sensibility that necessarily go on for you to live your life. But one of those feelings is called sympathy, and you don't even know you're employing sympathy But you will notice that if you're in a crowd of people and you get a little bit tired, you're sitting there in the crowd and you start to yawn, people who see you yawning, the sympathetic responses that they feel like yawning themselves, well, that is a very interesting phenomenon in revival, but it is an important thing. If it wasn't for sympathy, the church, as we're gathered together, we sing together, we worship together, and we're all joined together in this worship by sympathy. It blends us together and so on, but it can get out of hand. So sympathy is purely instinctive, appearing as powerfully in animals as in men. That's why, and I explained this a couple of times, and you may have missed that, that when these old authors talk about animal passions and so on, Working in humans, they're just talking about something that we have in common that animals communicate to, and sympathy is one of them. Witness the excitement of a flock of birds over the cries of a single comrade and the stampede of a herd of oxen. Next, it is even in man an unintelligent feeling in this sense that if the emotion of another be merely seen and heard, sympathy is 
propagated. Let me give you a really good example of it that I know you will understand if you're driving down the road, you look off and you see a car that's upside down and the ambulance is trying to maybe use the jaws of death to cut it open and get the person out of there. There's an expression that we use when we look over there called bottlenecking or, you know, turning the head so that you can take it in. That's the effect of sympathy. Although the sympathizer understands nothing of the cause of the feeling he witnesses, we come upon a child who is an utter stranger, never seen a child before, weeping. We share the sympathetic saddening before he has had time to tell us what causes his tears. So you will feel an emotion when you see another in distress. You can hear it in their tone and their weeping and their tears and your heart sympathizes with them without you even knowing what led him to his weeping. We enter a room where our friends are drowned in laughter. You walk in, everybody's laughing. You haven't even heard what they're laughing about and you almost break out in a smile you're really interested in what is this that has got everybody laughing well that is the effect of sympathy before we have asked a question friends what is the jest or what are you laughing about we find ourselves smiling we see two strangers afar off exchanging blows we feel the excitement stimulating us to run there while ignorant of the quarrel they're fighting and we want to run we want to sympathy is in its rise unintelligent and instinctive the only condition requisite for it is a beholding, seeing, feeling in a, our fellow man, in quote. Archibald Alexander, Thoughts on Religious Experience, has a chapter just on the effect of sympathy. He says there is a mysterious bond called sympathy by which not only human beings but some species of animals are connected. It is much easier on this subject to state the facts and to account for them. A man cannot go into any company without being sensible of some change in his feelings. Whatever passion agitates those around him, he involuntarily participates in the emotion, and a mere external expression of any feeling often produces the same expression in himself, whether it be yawning, smiling, crying or coughing and this must be affected by an assimilation of the mind of the beholder to the state of mind which produces the external act the wilder and stronger the passions which agitate excitement which agitate others the more we are affected by them this operation of mutual sympathetic excitement produces a stream of emotion which cannot easily be resisted and far above what on any one of the crowds would have felt if the same cause had operated on him alone now this is why this is important to the study of revival pure revival quote but it is in times of revival or general awakening that the power of this principle manifests itself most evidently and it is no evidence of a spurious work in other words you can't say that the revival is spurious that the sympathies of the people are much awakened or that many are led to seriousness by seeing others affected god often blesses this instinctive feeling in this very way but is it not to be expected that at such a time many will be affected by mere sympathy? Lay that foundation because I'm going to build on it. And it will not such as are thus affected be in great danger of being deceived by taking these tender emotions of sympathy to be the exercises of true 
repentance, especially as they fall in with those convictions of conscience which are all who hear the gospel experience. Is it then judicious? Is it a wise idea? He's asking. By impassioned discourses addressed to the sympathies of our nature. And this is what Finney did. Continually he would work upon the sympathetic emotion, supposing that the reaction that he would see in the body physiologically was a sign that the Holy Spirit was convicting and converting people. That's laid the foundation for revivalism. Or to devise measures, and that's what they called them, the new measures of Charles Finney, by which the passions of the young and ignorant may be excited to excess that measures may be put into operation which have a mighty influence on a whole assembly is readily admitted, but are excitements thus produced really useful? They may bring young people who are diffident to a decision and, as it were, constrains them to range themselves on the Lord's side. But the question which sticks with me is, does this really benefit the people? In my judgment, not at all but the contrary. Later he says, ministers cannot prevent the impressions which arise merely from sympathy. You can't prevent it. In fact, it has its place in worship to draw us all together and make us, though we are many people, one family worshiping together. That's the way that God made us. But we cannot mistake that for conviction and conversion, which can only be by the Holy Spirit through the word. So ministers cannot prevent the impressions which arise merely from sympathy, neither should they attempt it. But when they are about to gather the wheat into the garner, they should faithfully winnow the heap, not that they can discern the spirits of men, but the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The church is no place of safety for the unconverted. Hundreds and thousands are shielded from beneficial spiritual convictions by their profession and situation in the church. Let ministers be wise as serpents as well as harmless as doves, Matthew 10, 16. Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, James 3, 1. They watch for souls as those who must give an account, Hebrews 13, 17. Solemn account in Quote, being in a part of the country, he tells a story, and I get such a kick out of this. That's why I love uh, the writings of the 19th century. It's when the writers started to bring in personal uh, experiences in a helpful way to illustrate something that they are trying to communicate. Uh, some people say that I don't think you should ever bring such illustrations into the sermons. Well, illustrations get out of hand. I've seen introductions to sermons where the person goes, goes on six to seven minutes and then he gets into the sermon and then you just ask yourself did that illustration even have to do with go ahead Michael well I think because the books that were being written were more instructive as far as what we would call helping people in their personal experience However, uh, there are times when I love to read this stuff, but in the morning if I'm narrating and I have maybe an hour and I really want to be immediately affected with what I'm reading, I want as close to man and the word as possible. And you won't find this in John Owen, but a little, you know. It's amazing. Uh, this is a good illustration. John Owen and his wife had 11 children. 
10 of them died in infancy. The 11th died of what we now call tuberculosis or consumption. When she was 19 years old, none of his children survived. And you will look in vain through 24 volumes of his writings to find autobiographical details about them. But because of the awakening that I was under, I discovered this book in 1984. I needed these personal stories so that I knew I was not alone. Autobiographies were helpful to me, like Grace Amounting to the Chief of Sinners by John Bunyan. I needed those things. So being in a part of the country where I was known by face to scarcely anyone, Archibald Alexander, uh, this is a historical background that I think is really important. And I've talked to Sam Waldron about this because it's seminary education. The first three pastors, well, two of the pastors and the president of early Princeton Theological Seminary, Ash Bell Green. All three of those men, Samuel Miller, Archibald Alexander, Ash Bell Green, all of them were pastors for a number of years before they became the professors at Princeton. And by the second and third generations, these people became professors who had never been pastors of churches. And the professors and the students go toward more of an academician instead of a pastoral preparation. And since you brought this up, I think this is a really good illustration. There's a book that was written called The Power of the Pulpit, Gardner Spring, 1848. Spring had attended Princeton Theological Seminary, but Spring saw what was going on in these seminaries, and that is that the students were becoming academicians. They weren't preparing men really to be pastors, and that's been a burden of mind. There's things that Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary cannot teach you about pastoral interaction that you have to learn by experience. So he said, I determined to attend this revival going on in a local church. So he's a pastor for 20 years. This is early when Alexander was a young man, he before 1800, uh, and he was a pastor. He lived during a time of some of these revivals. The sermon had commenced before I arrived, and the house was so crowded that I could not approach near to the pulpit. So I sat down in a kind of a shed connected with the main building where I could see and hear the preacher. His sermon was really striking and impressive and in language and method far above the common run of extempore discourses. He really had a gift of delivery, communication skills. So he really had the people attentive because he was a great communicator like a Whitfield. The people were generally attentive and so far as I could observe, many were tenderly affected except that in the extreme part of the house where I sat, some old tobacco planters kept up a continual conversation in a low tone about tobacco plants, seasons, and so on. They weren't even listening to the sermon. When the preacher came to the application of his discourse, he became exceedingly vehement and boisterous, and I could hear sounds in the center of the house which indicated strong emotion. At length, a female voice was heard in a piercing cry which thrilled through me and affected the whole audience. He hears a piercing cry, but not necessarily what led 
to it, it was hard to listen from way back there. So if it affected him and she has a piercing cry, it the effect is by sympathy, not by the word, coming to the conscience, producing conviction. It was succeeded by a low murmuring sound from the middle of the house, but in a few seconds, one and another arose in different parts of the house under extreme invisible agitation. They cast off their bonnets and caps, raising their folded hands. They shouted to the utmost extent of their voice, and in a few seconds more, the whole audience was agitated as a forest when shaken by a mighty wind. The sympathetic wave commencing in the center, and I use the illustration of when you throw a rock into a pond and you see the concentric circles going out from it. It starts with the rock there, but it spreads out to the edges of the pond. That's what this sympathetic wave was doing. It commenced in the center, extended to the extremities, and at length it reached our corner, and I felt the conscious effort of resistance as necessary as if I had been exposed to the violence of a storm. Sympathetic wave. I saw few people through the whole house who escaped the prevailing influence. Even careless boys seemed to be arrested and to join in the general outcry. But what astonished me most of all was that the old tobacco planters, whom I have mentioned and who I am persuaded had not heard one word of the sermon, were violently agitated. Every muscle of their brawny faces appeared to be in tremulous motion, and the big tears chased one another down their wrinkled cheeks. Here I saw the power of sympathy. The feeling was real and propagated from person to person by the mere sounds which were uttered, for many of the audience had not paid any attention to what the preacher said. But nearly all partook of the agitation, and quote. I think that this is important in revival in the life of uh, Asahel Nettleton, and Lord willing, I'll teach on Nettleton two weeks from tonight. But Nettleton really was a student, not just of Jonathan Edwards' writings, but of mistakes that were made in the First Great Awakening. And by most people's consent, and judgment. There were things that Edwards allowed early on, like people hitting the floor and that, that wasn't properly brought in order quickly, where later on in revivals, they knew that to prevent the effect of mere sympathy, and this is what Asahel Nettleton did. He had it prearranged with people that were working with him in these revivals, that before he began to preach, they would have a separate building called an inquiry room. And when somebody started to cry out in the congregation under real stress and conviction from the sermon, a couple of people would take her, they would lead her outside, and they would take her to the next building where people could be there to talk to her about her conviction. Because Nettleton knew the effect of sympathy that many people that were coming to hear the sermon could look like they were under conviction because of their agitation on their faces, you could see it, that Nettleton wanted to make sure that the 
agitation and emotion was from the Holy Spirit applying the word to the conscience and not merely the effect of sympathy. In a book by Ebenezer Porter, who was one of the professors of Andover Theological Seminary, by the way, Andover Theological Seminary is where Adoniram Judson went to school, uh, because Judson was a Congregationalist before he was a Baptist, and the Congregationalists, because of the liberalism that came into Harvard Theological Seminary and 1805, they brought in this professor named Henry Ware, who was a Unitarian, and the Congregationalist pastors who were sending their students to Harvard to prepare them for the ministry realized very early on we need a separate school where we could be very, very careful as to who the students are. And uh, Judson was received as a special case in the first year of Andover Theological Seminary. He wasn't, he didn't even have a profession yet. He was under awakening. But his dad, uh, Ed and Iron Judson's father, was a congregational pastor who was in the group that was meeting together to start this seminary. And the guy that I'm going to teach on next week, Lord willing, Edward Dorr Griffin, was also going to be on this faculty, even though he is a Presbyterian. And Edward Dorr Griffin was so impressed by what he could learn of Adoniram Judson that he made a special plea that Judson could be brought into Andover Theological Seminary as a special case student. I'm saying that because a lot of people have never heard of how some of these seminaries were founded. But Ebenezer Porter uh, was a professor there, and he wrote a number of letters on revival, which came out about 1830s. And he says, quote, the next general topic on which I promise to remark is the exercise of sinners under legal convictions. Concerning these, ministers are accustomed to discriminate between impressions, impressions, and convictions, the former were often produced by sympathy, by solemn appeals to the passions. That is so much at the foundation of revivalism. We will make an appeal to the passions. One of these uh, pastors, itinerant preachers, who's pretty well known, you know, like a Billy Graham or somebody, and his name was Lowell Lundstrom. And he was in Montana. At the time, my sister had a profession. And so, because they knew that there was going to be this uh, gathering, they call it revival or whatever they call it, they said, okay, to you 12 here who are my workers during this revival, when I give the altar call, you 12 come up forward first because you're going to cause other people to say, well, it's okay to go forward. All these other people are going forward. And, you know, I'm observing these things. And by that time, I'd already uh, discovered A.W. Pink, Lloyd-Jones, beginning studying the Puritans. And I said, man, this is just wrong. And everything I've studied ever since then just uh, really convicts me the more that I was right. So he says, the animal or social instincts or self-love were at the bottom of these excitements. Under their influence, sinners sometimes exhibited very hopeful appearances. They seemed to be very anxious, resolved to lead a new life, made up their minds, as they said, to attend to religion as their immediate and great concern. But soon they were as careless as ever. These were mere impressions, sometimes serious indeed, or even distressing, for the time, but more commonly slight and evanescent. 
Conviction on, of sin, on the other hand, has a deeper origin. It is a vivid sense on the sinner's conscience, not of his danger chiefly, but of his guilt as a transgressor against God. This conscience arrays before him in the light of the divine law shows him its curse, righteous and dreadful as it is, falling upon his own head and no escape or remedy but through Christ. Now, ministers who were skillful as guides to inquiring sinners deemed it of vital importance to keep the above distinction and prominent in all their instructions and encouragements, whereas men of impetuous temper and little experience often treated anxiety in different sinners as amounting to just the same thing as conviction of guilt, and thus attempted to apply the remedy of the gospel to hearts that had never been wounded for sin, end quote. From a narrative of a revival in New Haven about that time, some were first wrought upon by natural sympathy. But the good thing is it can start off on an inferior motive, and they can be more impressionable because they're already anxious. That when the word comes, the ground is plowed up and they can hear better. So though it may start with natural sympathy, sympathy, he says, and were themselves deeply distressed merely because they saw others in deep distress. Nevertheless, many of them have gone on to be convicted. There were then no missionaries to go from place to place in Kentucky and preach to the scattered population, and inasmuch as no neighborhood had a population sufficient to support so many people in this revival as assembled on those occasions, this gave rise to the plan of camp meeting. So now you have people coming from as far away as 100 miles They're all gathering for this revival. They can't possibly go home at night. And so they had their uh, supplies with them so that they could be there that night, the next day, or a few days. The multitude who intended to be stationary located themselves with their wagons, carriages, or tents in such places around the stand as their fancy or convenience dictated And this is the origin of the camp meetings, and it is often said that the uh, Red River Meeting House and the Revival of 1800 was the origin of camp meetings for the country, and it was out of just convenience and necessity. They originated in the Presbyterian Church from necessity. This is Samuel Miller writing in a letter to William Sprague that's in the appendix of Lectures on Revival of Religion, which was 1832. By the way, go to Google. Do a search on Lectures on Revival of Religion. Sprague isn't going to show up right away. Uh, Lectures on Revival of Religion by the Ministers of Scotland, 1840. That's not going to show up right away. Lectures on Revival by Finney. That comes up right away. The whale has been poisoned. In this necessity camp meetings, perhaps at the time justified the measure, and so long as they were confined to the circumstances which seemed to call for them, camp meetings were extensively accommodating and thought to be highly beneficial. The meetings at first were awfully solemn, and no doubt much good was done. But when they were extended and adopted in the more populous parts of the country, where they were attended by thousands and tens of thousands, induced by every motive, good or bad, together with the lax and irregular management of them, they exhibited too much the appearance of disorder and confusion which baffled and defied all description. It is proper to remark, however, that the form and arrangements of camp meetings now differ very much from those in former days. And so what could go wrong? Well, they become a subject of disorder, confusion, and so on. But the other thing that happens is 
Well, we see that revival was going on, so they had a camp meeting out of necessity, out of convenience, out of charity to the people that had come from 100 miles away. But what would happen after that? The superficial, uninformed would say, if we want a revival, we got to start with the camp meeting. Camp meetings are now not the effect of necessity, but they are a means to the end of revival. This is what was beginning to happen in Charles Finney's revivals is that the measures that may in and of themselves have been innocent and helpful, no more detrimental to the worship than the light shining down on the pulpit in the other room, but the lights cannot produce a worship. They assist us in it, but to think that if you now have a camp meeting, you have an altar call and so on, that that will now bring revival. That's what began to happen. So the case he refers to is that of the remarkable revivals which took place in Kentucky, 1800-1802. My impression is, Samuel Miller says, that the most enlightened and sincere friends of vital piety who had the best opportunity of being intimately acquainted with the revivals referred to believed them to have been a real work of the Holy Spirit, or at least to have been productive of a number of genuine conversions. But that this work of grace was attended and finally overshadowed, disgrace and terminated by fanaticism and disorders of the most distressing character will not probably now be questioned by any competent judges. So there were a number of things that happened in this revival that were really inconvenient and it became disordered and so on as a result. So if you look at the book Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray, came out in 1994, it's when he gets to the Kentucky Revival, and it starts off, so far, so good. Then he continues in it. Murray shows that this is where revivalism started. So at these meetings, hundreds and in some cases thousands of people might have been seen and heard at the same time engaged in singing and prayer and exhortation and preaching. All of the people thought that they needed to sing, to pray, exhort publicly, and they began to leap, shout, dispute, converse with a confusion scarcely describable. The wonderful excitement may be considered as standing related both as cause and effect to several other deplorable irregularities. A love of excitement and of agitation seemed to take possession of of the people. They began to suppose that when these were absent, nothing was done. Unless I saw this disorder, maybe there really isn't a revival here. A number of hot-headed young men intoxicated with a prevailing element of excitement and feeling confident of their own powers and call to the work, though entirely destitute of any suitable education, assumed the office of public exhorters and instructors. These were soon afterwards licensed to preach, a majority of the Presbyterian hoping that, although not regularly qualified, they might still be useful. I was trying to think of the illustration I wanted to give. There were three people that came to the Kentucky Revival, not just James McGrady, but from North Carolina, a man named Rankin and a guy named William McGee. And McGee was probably a Methodist, but they came out here during the revival. Peter Cartwright was also a Wesleyan, but he was used in the revivals in Kentucky. But William McGee, so you have this conviction going through the crowd, and people are under serious conviction. And in studying of revivals, I noticed that the 
pastors who were really, really scrupulous about keeping order were some of the Presbyterians that were used in the Great Awakening. I mentioned Jonathan Dickinson, Samuel Blair, and so on. But William McGee thought that God was impressing him. That's always a bad sign. He had an impression that God was convicting him that he needed to do something. And he stood up when the people were already in a state of solemnity and he started going through the crowds just preaching at the top of his voice and it created a huge agitation and disorder. And the Presbyterian had warned him, please, please do not do this because you're going to stir the people up and it isn't the Holy spirit, but he wouldn't listen. Robert Davidson, History of the Presbyterian Church in Kentucky, Disorder in the 1800 Revival. The public services were animated and tears flowed freely, but nothing special was noticed until Monday. While Mr. Hodge was preaching, a woman at the extreme end of the house, unable to repress the violence of her emotions, gave vent to them in loud cries. During the intermission which succeeded the services, the people showed no disposition to leave their seats, but wept in silence all over the house. So far, so good. They're under conviction. They're crying out. Uh, Many of them may be having genuine conviction. And this is the story I was hinting at. Such was the state of things when, says John McGee here, I said William, it says John McGee, the Methodist, rose in his turn to speak. Too much agitated to preach, he expressed his belief that there was a greater than the preaching and exhorted the people to let the Lord God omnipotent reign in their hearts and to submit to him and their souls should live. Upon this, many broke silence and the renewed vociferations of the female before mentioned were tremendous. The Methodist preacher, whose feelings were now wrought up to the highest pitch after a brief debate in his own mind, came to the conclusion that it was his duty to disregard the usual orderly habits of the denomination and passed along the aisle, shouting and exhorting vehemently. The clamor and confusion were increased tenfold. The flame was blown to its height. Screams for mercy were mingled with shouts of ecstasy, and a universal agitation pervaded the whole multitude, who were bowed before it as a field of grain waves before the wind. Now followed prayer and exhortation, and the minister found their strength soon taxed they were beginning to be worn out to the utmost because they were trying to keep pace with the demands of the intense excitement but the intense excitement wasn't necessarily revival so thomas clellan who uh, i'm indebted to so much of this for wrote an article that got published in the prince of theological review the biblical repertory called Bodily Affections Produced by Religious Excitement. So he discusses what was good in this and also what was disorderly. So I only got one paragraph from him before I close talking about the Asbury Revival, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Quote, Thomas Clellan, throughout the assembly, as far as the eye could reach from the stand, there was a continual commotion and confused noise of preaching, exhorting, singing, praying, and shouting going on at the same instant. Many from curiosity or anxiety were seen continually running from one group to another so that the multitude was in a perpetual state of commotion and agitation. This scene of things continued day and night with little or no abatement. The ministry rather yielded up the reins to the multitude. So the pastors are leading, the multitude takes over with all of the excitement and now the congregation or the people who are joined together are now leading the assembly. 
uh, what could go wrong. This scene of things continued day and night with little or no abasement, and now it was the multitude who were carried away. And then what happens? The pulpit becomes of little account. The pulpit is absolutely essential in revivals to conversion, so people can come under the light through private counsel and so on, but God has been pleased to have the preached word as a means to the end of the Holy Spirit convicting and converting the sinner. This sentiment was not confined exclusively to the populace, for some of the leading and most popular preachers gave way to the opinion that such kind of preaching was rather an interruption to the great work that was then going on, hence the most zealous, arrogant, and enthusiastic of the laity finding the ministry ready to surrender their posts. Very naturally took the whole management of the service out of the pastor's hands and controlled it at pleasure. Moreover, if a pastor, however evangelical in faith and practice, did not come up fully to the mark, in other words, if he expressed any disapprobation, I got my concerns about what's going on here, brethren. I'm a little bit concerned. Or he ministered any type of caution, attempted to correct any extravagancies. He was not only set down immediately as being hostile to the revival, but even interrupted and prevented from proceeding in his discourse by some of the multitude who commenced singing or praying or exhorting or shouting, whichever was at the time found most convenient by the leaders of such disorder. End quote. Now this is such an interesting segue to the Asbury Revival because the inmates were running the asylum. So Scott Brown, you may have heard of him. He is one of these uh, really kind of a family integrated mm-hmm. convictions, but good good man, great expositor, good preacher, very good friends with Jeff Pollard down at Mount Zionville. And he says, these are my observations of the Asbury Revival 2023. I have watched a couple of hours of the Asbury Revival video. I'm not surprised that some students are being helped and even saved. Also, a friend of mine was a student in Asbury many years ago. They had had a revival there in 1970. So he traveled to Asbury this week, his friend, and reported to me what he witnessed firsthand. Here's my takedown from what I have seen and heard so far. One, testimonies are extremely emotional even out of control emotions. The fruit of the Spirit, though, is self-control. There is much emotion and not much doctrinal truth in the testimonies. I'm not hearing biblical categories of repentance and reformation. The testimonies are pretty much about emotional attachment, love, service, feeling close to God, availability to God. But Jeremiah 6.14 says they have also Heal the hurt of my people slightly saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Number two, where are the men? Primarily young women are leading the congregation and singing. One woman on the platform was wearing a t-shirt that said, listen to the women preach. I don't understand why they would have young girls guiding a crowd in such a significant moment. I view this not only as unwise, but as a manifestation of feminism in the church and a rejection of explicitly stated male leadership in the church. Number three, where are the mature pastors? There seems to be no visible pastors giving doctrinal direction or process direction or shepherding the crowds with the word of God. There have been some sermons, but the teaching of scripture is incidental, not central in this situation and quote the president of the cemetery seminary the president of the seminary wrote 
Especially the pastor whose sermon apparently started a revival, Zach Meerkrieb, said they're not ready to call what's happening at the school a revival. Yesterday, McCreebs actually said no one will know it's a real revival until months from now, end quote. I think it's better to call it an outpouring right now. Dr. Stephen Siemens, professor of Christian doctrine at Asbury Theological Seminary said, and that's what they are calling it, the Asbury outpouring. You want to see the long-term effect, the long-term effect it has on people's lives. And that is true. In revival, you will want to see the conversions continue in perseverance. Falling away is a bad sign. However, however, it doesn't mean that God's Holy Spirit didn't descend upon the old revivals, even though they're apostates. The Holy Spirit didn't cause them to apostatize. So they are right. We do want to see the fruits at the end of it. But should it take a number of weeks and months before we determine there is a real revival here and all? give you a hint in a minute. The Second Great Awakening in the 1800s produced the abolition movement. Well, that's not necessarily a good thing. The abolition movement had its place, but really the abolition movement in the Second Great Awakening came from men who were Presbyterians. W. Barton W. Stone became a heretic, a Unitarian, denying the Trinity. In fact, this man, Thomas Cullen, when he went on to be a pastor, there's a number of things that he wrote that are on the Log College Press site, because they're all alphabetical by pastor, were letters he was writing to Barton Stone about the validity of the Trinity. So there was an abolitionist movement, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that was a good fruit of this revival. So Laura Levins, in an article called What I Witnessed This Week at the Asbury Revival, I visited the revival at Asbury University on Tuesday, February 14th. I arrived mid-morning, and when I entered Hughes Chapel, that was the main chapel, the entire crowd was bathed in soft golden light. Two-story, buttery, yellow stained glass windows cast everything and everyone with a serene glow like an eternal sunset. So they're producing the atmosphere by the lighting. And she thinks that's a good thing. Everything on stage was intentionally lo-fi production during my two and a half hour stay. Three people were on stage singing and playing music. They gently rocked and sang softly as they played guitar and piano. A large drum kit and the stately organ pipes went unused. A few art pieces dotted the stage in quote. And Tim Chelles wrote about this. And if you know Tim Chelles, usually he's pretty sound. And I was so taken back by his observations or polemic saying we need to wait. This may be a revival. Let's not necessarily discount it. But let me, let me quote him. Jonathan Edwards once made some good and helpful observations about the distinguishing marks of a revival. Quote, but his observations are not authoritative. He, after all, lived at a particular time and in a certain place and within a distinct context. So he's saying revivals may differ if you're at a different time and in a different place and within a different context. And I just happen to disagree vehemently so much so that I did a podcast and I did a review of this. The main elements of a revival are going to be there. And the one thing that is missing from these artificial revivals when the manifest presence of the Holy God comes upon an assembly, 
people are going to tremble who are out of Christ. And what was so interesting about the Asbury Revival is to a person, everybody that professed to be a Christian in this revival, before the revival, would as they claim, were just enlivened, they were quickened, and so on. Nobody was found out to have a false hope. Nobody trembled before the manifest presence of God. And I have studied these things for 40 years, and I know of no genuine revival that I have read about. The revival in the United Kingdom in 1859, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening under, under Asa Hell Nettleton, and in the Kentucky Revival when the Holy Spirit came down upon the people there in Logan County. People trembled. This is God Almighty and a revival is a foretaste of what it's going to be like to stand before him on the judgment day if you are not in Christ and you will tremble. Not saying that they aren't later converted. I'm saying initially in a revival when the presence of God is upon an assembly, it is terrible. And if you doubt me, uh, I have narrated more than once the uh, book on uh, Authentic Records of Revival Now in Progress in the United Kingdom, 1859 by William Reed. Listen to what it said by Adam McGill. He said that if a angel went through the town and took out the firstborn of every family in this town, the people could not have been more solemn than they were in this assembly. And I have seen that expression over and over again. Anyway, from an article by Pastor Kelly Williams in an article called My Daughter and I Attended the 2023 Asbury Revival. Please don't hate on it she says. He says. Periodically, different people would leave the auditorium and walk down the long line of people waiting to get in and share testimony of what was going on inside and how the Holy Spirit visited them. One guy said he stood in line for eight hours to get in and it was worth every minute of it. Another young woman was walking down the street with tears streaming down her face, talking with exuberance on the phone with someone of how God had visited her and spoke directly to her. It was obviously life-changing for her. Scary. At night, as night fell, darkness descended, the line slowed, but the energy and anticipation grew. I reached a point where I couldn't feel my feet or hands from the cold, and then eventually my body from the waist down was numb. It didn't matter to me. I felt the power and energy from the live stream being cast in the grassy area. You could see and hear the transformation of the spirit moving and descending on the people. Now compare to this, uh, William H. Hetherington, Scottish pastor, wrote a uh, um, history of the Westminster Assembly, and I just want to read this in closing because it's such a powerful indication of a difference in a real revival. Quote, and this is in the introduction, the first and chief distinction between them consists in a revival being the manifestation to an unusual degree of power and extent of the converting energy of the Holy Spirit. When this takes place in any district, it is not strange that men should feel their souls overawed. It's in the more than usually manifested presence of the Lord God Almighty. Not strange that the conscience-stricken sinner should crouch in trembling terror is in the near view of his omniscient judge. Not strange if the cold and worldly formalists who had been permitting the deadening lethargy of sin to lull him into a fatal repose should start a 
behold, as if he heard a voice saying to him, Awake, O sleeper, and call upon your God. Not strange if in each and all of these cases the minds of men should be shaken by a sudden and a strong excitement impelling them to much which could not have been caused by a single unobserved conversion. A considerable degree of excitement in such circumstances is perfectly inevitable, and yet it must be evident that it is not essential either to the conversion of a sinner or to the reawakening of a dormant believer, but has its source chiefly, if not entirely, in the sympathetic principle of human nature, which is so powerful in producing, increasing, and extending emotions of every kind. The existence of excitement, therefore, is no proof whatever of the genuineness of conversion or of a revival, and remains fairly within the province of human reason to inquire into its cause, to ascertain its nature, and to guide, modify, or check its progress without in the very slightest degree presuming to intermeddle with the sacred and mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. Quote, if you're examining what you see going on in a revival, so far from that being quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit and forbidding anything that God is doing, it would be irresponsible not to examine it by his word to see if it is the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit that's doing it. That's what First John is to test mm-hmm. the spirits. This revival never mentions testimonies of awakening, and that's my second concern. In the book, Lectures on Revival, in this chapter 6, I know by memory because I've narrated it more than once. In this book on revival, the title is called Treatment Due to the Awakened Sinner. He's awakened. He's not a Christian yet. He's saying, what must I do to be saved? You sit down with him as a pastor and you give him light. You try to help him out. You don't hear of any awakenings in the Asbury revival where somebody needs to be counseled. Jonathan Edwards' narrative of surprising conversions, quote, persons are first awakened with a sense of their miserable condition by nature, the danger they are in of perishing eternally, and that it is of a great importance to them that they speedily escape and get into a better state. Those who before were secure and senseless are made sensible how much they were in the way to ruin in their former course. Some are more suddenly seized with convictions that may be by the news of others' conversion or something they hear in public or in private conference. Their consciences are smitten as if their hearts were peered through with a dart. Others are awakened more gradually. They begin at first to be something more thoughtful and considerate so as to come to a conclusion in their minds that it is their best and wisest way to delay no longer but to improve the present opportunity. They have accordingly set themselves seriously to meditate on those things that have the most awakening tendency on purpose to obtain convictions. And so their awakenings have increased till the sense of their misery by God's Holy Spirit setting in therewith has had fast hold of them. And just one last paragraph, things to be avoided in connection with revival, William Sprague. Undervaluing divine institutions and divine truth is another evil which often exists in connection with revivals. It is common and no doubt right to, during a season of special attention to religion, to increase the number of occasional services during the week, and especially the number of meetings for social prayer, and it is desirable that Christians should feel a deep interest in these exercises and should regard it as not less a duty than a privilege to engage in them as their 
circumstances may admit, but they are not to be considered in a strict sense as divine institutions. These meetings in the midweek are not to take place of meeting together with the brethren on the Lord's day. And as we believe even a direct sanction and apostolic usage, yet the regulation of them is a matter which God has been pleased to leave to the wisdom of the church. And whenever Christians exalt them, the gathering meetings during the week, to an equality with all those institutions which are strictly divine, they may expect to incur the displeasure of the master as well as lose the benefit which these exercises are adapted when kept in their proper place to impart. But there is reason to apprehend that many Christians during a season of revival actually do in their feelings attach an importance to these services, which is even paramount to that which they recognize as belonging to the public exercises of the Lord's Day. The secret feeling of the heart there is reason to believe often is that to attend public worship on the Sabbath, though it is a duty, has yet too little in it that is distinctive and out of the common course. These are what they conclude to be regarded with very deep interest, whereas those services which are observed during the week and which seem more like a free will offering rise in their estimation to the highest degree of importance in quote. Henry Clay Fish, he was a Baptist handbook of revivals, a thirst for the preaching word, and a deep interest interest in it is a revival indication. In a spiritual declension, there is nothing resembling an appetite, a thirst for the word. There is no deep soul penetrating soul subduing interest felt in hearing it. The whole of this is reversed in a revival, in a revived living church. The soul of the people open at once to the word of God and melt and bend beneath the simplest truths presented in the simplest scripture dress. So I want to close with the reflections of Thomas Clellan at the end of his his letter to a brother and remember this was not put out there to be published necessarily he gave it to him the person asked please give me an account of what you saw and he said that if you find this useful you may do with it as you please but he did not put this out there to be seen by the public so if I read this dear brother I have since your communications came to hand been so much engaged in one way or another that I've had no leisure to attend to your request Thomas Cullen said as respecting the revival. And even now I feel too much at a loss and I'm prepared to do anything more than to state a few facts and so on. But he says that such facts are detailed and maybe they need to be consigned to oblivion. He had a very humble view of this. However, the person who had the biblical repertory published them says, I disagree. There is such a striking picture here exhibited of the scenes in question and so much useful information, but this was his concluding remarks because of the aberration of the Kentucky Revival, and I gave these when I taught on this in 2018 as well. One, the things that were happening to the body, the jerks, all this stuff. The first reflection which is suggested by the preceding accounts is that the physiology of the human system is very imperfectly understood. Number two, the second is that an irregular action of the nervous system produces often very astonishing appearances, but they might not necessarily be spiritually the same. Number three, religious excitement carried to excess is a dangerous thing. Enthusiasm is a counterfeit of true religion and is a species of insanity. Number four, in revivals of religion badly regulated, there may be much extravagance and yet the work in the main may be genuine. The wise will discriminate and not approve or condemn in the lump. 
5. Pious men and women are imperfect in knowledge and often form erroneous opinions which lead them astray. Bodily affections, however, are no evidence of error or enthusiasm one way or the other. Such bodily affections as are described in the foregoing narratives are no doubt real nervous diseases which do not destroy the general health. All such things tend to the discredit of religion and should be prevented or discouraging. So the pure jerks, the emotions, the things that they couldn't explain, they need to be kept in their proper order and it is dangerous to magnify them. And you will see this continually in the writings of uh, Wesley's journals. And I'm not making a blanket condemnation of everything Wesley said or preached or whatever, but they just assumed that if people fell down in these agitations and cried out that this was really, really a good sign. And some of it may have been, and some of it may have been the effect of mere sympathy. With that, Michael, do you have any questions? Uh, you know, to answer your first question, the reason why it's more obvious in the revival is because the sympathy is expressed more loudly, uh, visibly. Uh, if somebody falls over in a state of agitation, crying out, and you see other people affected with it, that could be the effect of sympathy. But during a normal worship service, and you have people that are affected by sympathy by praying together and that, uh, that's not loud. It's orderly. It's uniform. There's symmetry in it. And that in a revival, it's the bad effect of sympathy that they're zeroing in on. And that's why uh, Nettleton would say if a lady falls down, starts screaming and all that, that he would have his counselors take her to another room. Because in that type of preaching that's commonly in a revival, like the power that Whitfield had, it can very much work on what, they used to call the animal passions. That means passions that we have in common with animals. So it's more obviously more visible to the eye. And it's really, really important that when we understand conversions, and the Presbyterians were so helpful in the things I've read on this and some of the Baptists too in their writings, and that is the only proper abiding impression has to be made upon the soul as opposed to the body. Remember I said that feeling is a temperature of inclination and affection. That feeling is in the body. However, in after we die, we're not going to be connected to our bodies, so all spiritual affections are purely of the soul. The mind, the will, and affections are part of the soul, and therefore those are the things which are the most pure. And so those are uh, also the things that the devil tries to imitate and create a false imitation of it to deceive people.